Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to Energy and Efficiency with Emily. Today we have Daryl on. Daryl is a builder out in Oregon, um, but he is originally from Maine. So I will let him tell you a little bit about what he's up to and uh, how he got into working in the building science world. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I uh, grew up in uh, Windsor, Maine, uh, part of my life in Whitefield, Maine, but um, and then uh, Windsor. Went to uh, Erskine Academy um, and uh, where uh, Mike Mains was a couple of years ahead of me. And so some of you folks know Mike and um, we kind of connected um, just lightly. Just I, I just noticed some of the work he was doing in the good house, the pretty good house movement. Um, I think I was remodeling somebody's kitchen and um, and I think they had I had, uh, you know, you, you kind of I don't know about most guys, but I'll. Uh, I've had like JLC and fine home building and I read the periodicals and articles, but eventually I got this stack, you know, that's a mile high and I figure, you know what, I've got enough to go for a while. So I drop it. Um, and I hadn't seen uh, fine home building in a while. This is probably 10 years ago. And uh, there was Mike on the cover and I thought, oh, and he used to be my neighbor in Windsor uh, by neighbor. I mean, he was about a mile and a half away. Um, but uh, I did, I was really loved his uh, family property not that we ever spend much time together, but his younger brother was a year behind me in school. So we'd go up there sledding and things like that when we were kids. And so anyway, very interesting to see somebody uh, that you, uh, I, kn I knew even in high school, his direction. Um, they built a, I remember his, either uh, his class or his shop class built a beautiful gazebo for Erskine Academy. And I remember appreciating that as a student. Um, I enjoyed woodworking then, but I was also a musician and, um, and uh, as I got out of high school, got into, uh, I ended up working on the coast, um, uh, really got into excavation at first, but then that moved, transitioned into uh, stone masonry. Uh, and then, uh, so between 94 and 99, when I first drove to Oregon, by 99, I'd started my own masonry business. Uh, and then uh, in 99, I met my wife out here on a, on a trip to Oregon and I ended up working for her family ranch. And then we ended up living in Spokane for a while and that's really where I got into kind of remodeling, I just kind of doing whatever I could do to pay the bills. And, and I've continued with some masonry work, but primarily I got into home building and, and through that, um, I you know did a lot of reading on passive homes and, and uh, I love the idea. I think probably as a Mainer, we all <laughs> grow up penny pinching and thinking, how can we save a buck? Um, but one thing that got me with the passive home would seem like the, the high volume of materials you had to throw at it to get this, you know, um, to continue to get this performance level up. And so I had started doing things where I, as soon as I, in our area, we're, we're very rural, uh, Northeast Oregon. And, um, so a little town called Enterprise is where I live and it's, I call it the Maine of Oregon because we're up in the northeast corner, uh, right up against Hell's Canyon, and um, 
we're it's all canyons to get out of our valley um, and they also call it the alps of oregon but it is cold relatively cold but also dry we have some it's a pretty dry climate so it's a different thing to get used to i remember in maine working at a four foot frost depth kind of um uh, as, as we plan on all of our digging and excavation and so generally everybody went with basements that's a little more rare out here because we have a two foot frost depth so some of our building practices were different um and uh anyhow I, I ended up over time just trying to implement anything i could get folks to implement as far as energy saving uh, methods um and it started out with just like a blown insulation i saw such a, a significant increase in uh, efficiency on the homes that we uh, did the net and blow system um, that uh, you know in the time you know to get it right was so much better than for us and anyway, we would have we don't have a, a, a large supply of uh, contractors that are doing subcontractors like insulators and then when i uh, stumbled on um, reading mike's work again and saw the, the passive or the uh, pretty good myself out here was sort of like i'd started combining uh, you know just an inch or two of foam on the exterior of homes depending on what the budgets could allow and just trying different methods of tightening up the home um, and then uh, of course you know we have a, a very uh, against dry so we really don't we haven't dealt with much with the moisture solar vapor drive things like that so we're um, in the particular area where i'm doing most of my building it's been kind of nice because we haven't had to deal quite as much with uh, any kind of uh, moisture problems um, though uh, coming from maine uh, mechanical and uh, flashings are, are crucial to me you know a lot of folks that i'd see out here would just kind of slap um, you know, flashings against the side of a chimney, say, uh, any kind of penetration, then just kind of caulk around it. Whereas, you know, uh, being a stonemason, I, you know, I even had brought out my box of lead, so I would roll the lead and pound it into the joints and do proper step flashings and things. So I brought some of that main pride with me to how we approached our uh, building. You know, Maine is wet, so we do have, you know, to watch out for the water and vapor. But it's been really interesting for me to talk to people in other climates, you know, in Oregon and Colorado, where you guys have, have dry systems where you don't have to worry quite so much ab about those things. So um, I don't know if Oregon is like the wild, wild west. I've talked to a couple of people in the Midwest where it really sounds like it's the wild, wild west, um, you know, and they say, oh, we can't wait for, you know, our area to pick up on some of this building science stuff that you guys seem to be doing in New England. Um, are you seeing anybody else in your area who's really doing this, who's trying to do pretty good house? Yeah, I've had, I've had some, um, in, and I think everybody's kind of got their own philosophy, but, um, you know, over the years of working in our small town, I mean, I've never had a business card per se, you know, but um, all of my work is word of mouth. And I'm generally, um, you know, if I wanted to be, it could be more, you know, years out, but I, I've kept it to a year and a half to two years out on work. Um, we've kept a very small company. I ran, you know, a number of guys years ago, probably our biggest struggle out here, uh, Oregon, uh, you know, it was a little bit to adjust to for me was coming from uh, Maine, not that there were any building codes when I was working there, um, there was basically like DEQ inspections, um, that was about it. And then you built a home and everybody had a lot of pride. It seemed like at least the crews I was working on, I was working down in New Harbor or New Haba. Um, and, uh, and that's primarily where we worked out of and, uh, and the crews that we worked for, of course, we we're building pretty high end homes, 
for the most part, but um, the things we were building our chimneys in were beautiful, well done homes. And there were a lot of, a uh, lot of thoughtful things that went into those at that time. People were trying experimental things. And I remember seeing the early sips and things and thought that was a really cool idea on some of the timber frames and stuff that we worked on. Um, and so, but again, access to some of that stuff here is very difficult because we're so remote. Um, again, we're, we're uh, an hour and a half from the nearest Walmart, you know, um, so to get, well, you really are beyond, remote. <laughs> yeah. Which, which we, we, really, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you look a lot of people, in fact, during this whole uh, virus thing, we've seen a lot of people have been trying to come into our little Valley cause it's, you know, it's a high mountain Valley. We were sitting enterprise sits at 3,800 feet. Joseph's at about 4,500 feet, which is just to the South of us. But, um, so we had, you know, we have kind of people coming to, coming into our area to try to escape uh, the cities and whatnot. But um, our county commissioners are kind of urging people to not do that. And our state is urging people to not r rush to these small towns. Yeah. But, um, but so, but getting things in here can be difficult. So pretty self-reliant yeah, for the most part. That's a good point that you bring up about yeah. the, you know, people escaping to other areas. That's a similar thing um, in Maine is that you have a lot of people from outside of Maine who have, you know, summer homes and they're thinking, oh, you know, if I'm going to be quarantined, I might as well be quarantined at the beach or something like that. But um, they're they're failing to take into account that these smaller towns don't have the infrastructure right. to handle that. So if you happen to get sick while you're there, um, or other people get sick in that town, they have a lot less capacity to, to handle it. And so, um, and you're used to being remote and it being an hour and a half to Walmart. Well, when you have to go to Walmart every week to go to the grocery store or whatever, you know, you do your shopping, being an hour and a half out is difficult for people who are traditionally used to being, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes from something. Um, I grew up in um, rural Pennsylvania and uh, it was always this joke that we lived five light years from civilization. Now we only lived like half an hour from the Walmart. So we lived, you know, like three times closer than you do. But I remember our friends uh, that we went to school with were like, oh my gosh, you guys live like so far away. <laughs> it was so... So it's really yeah. cool to hear, you know, that you're you're building and doing pretty good house in a very rural community where, you know, your access to to labor or other people is probably fairly difficult. Yeah, I mean, I've um like I said I've worked with other a lot of what we do here uh, because we're so rural and and because our our labor markets and our fluctuate um we we rely on each other as builders and like i was gonna, i was mentioning starting to mention earlier there were some really great builders here that i looked up to and i and i've done everything from uh you know i've kind of i've, I've had an entire uh, hardwood floor business that just kind of is on one side i i'm the guy that you know we'll do we'll dig out underneath the house we'll put up your crown moldings for a time i was sort of like just the crown and trim guy for a bunch of other contractors um, so I've kind of fluctuated whatever was coming I, we did a for a while we kind of just focused on tile work and we just did a heap of tile bathrooms and you know you do a bathroom for one client next thing you know I got you know five clients that want you know custom bathrooms you know so that's kind of what we did for a while and, and actually for us starting in we built a really custom home for my in-laws uh, they really wanted a place that was 
uh, kind of outside the box and I had a lot of fun helping design it and um, so sort of a western ranch style house with a two-tier and uh, like a 3,500 square foot home walk-in showers uh, I did a Rumford style fireplace uh, but again we started on that one I encouraged them we we did an in-floor heat system um, with uh, with with foam under the floor and then also um, uh, we did two inches of foam on the whole house um, and then a board and bat and then another stone veneer on the bottom part of the house and beautiful archway uh, we did sort of a, an interesting take on a, on a spiral staircase where we did a reverse spiral it was sort of a it started up one direction then spiraled back the other but we maintained our flow of path of uh, travel um, and a good friend of mine uh, one of the guys I worked with a primary guy I worked with in Spokane came down and we he really wanted to take just to be a part of the project because it's so much fun just kind of developing all the stuff so I kind of drew some drawings up and then we did that did a bunch of timber frame on that and so we it was a fun experimental place I mean we literally milled raw uh, maple into the baseboards and uh, we, you know again it was a it was a fun project and, and a beautiful end product in fact we got the uh, you know, the cabinets actually came out of Pennsylvania um, in Millersville. That's actually where I grew so, up, Millersville. And it's the town that I grew up outside of. So that oh, a small okay. world. You grew up next to Mike Mains on this. We connected online. Now we're talking. You got your cabinetry for your in-laws. Well, see, my wife's family, my wife's family is originally from Lancaster and her grandmother is from Millersville. And that's why the cabinets came from there because my mother-in-law wanted her the same cabinets as her cousin. I actually had to pick up a, a, a rig in New York City uh, that somebody had bought and wanted out. And then I bought a trailer in Lancaster, loaded it with cabinets, drove out here. And he, uh, he brought me out a bunch of uh, Lebanon bologna. Oh my gosh, right. That's one of those Lancaster things. And <laughs> yeah, that is too funny. So when I said Pennsylvania, I had no idea that you'd know exactly where we're talking about <laughs> wow small world yeah. yeah interesting connections it is a small world for sure part of the reason why i love doing this podcast is connecting to people from all over the country you know building sciences similar in some aspects and totally different in other ways across the whole united states for a while you could only buy an american-made window that was the same it had the same u values the same solar heat gain values for everywhere in the country and I'm like, but, but it's so totally different how you'd approach, you know, we have seven or eight climate zones here, you know, and then we've got wet and dry. And so it's been a lot of fun for me to learn different building science techniques for, for different areas, because I'm going to make the assumption that it gets cold where you are. It's just not wet. Yeah not as yeah it's not wet and so it tends to not i mean it can be like well today you know we've got kind of a snowy day but it's not bad and probably in in a couple of days ago it was like 60 degrees you know and uh it'll probably be that again um I'm, there's been the weather can be so different here the mountains really do uh though in general it's really it's really dry and uh, every once in a while we'll get those crazy systems that kind of stay and so we'll have main like weather for a time and we'll have those crazy storms where everything's hitting the windows sideways and when i i remember saying in a what i consider one of the nicest homes i'd ever been in um because i grew up you know in maine and we didn't have a whole lot but the house we grew up in was you know built in the 1800s and 
it was a it was a family homestead you know it was the 160 that my great 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 grandfather had been on and um, kind of a drafty old place coming out here you know my wife and i were staying one and the wind was blowing in the rain and, and i remember the water was coming in i thought how on earth and i started looking and they obviously they hadn't done any head flash and hadn't you know so there were things where people weren't even thinking they needed to do um you know flashing details to say like a violin because well it has a flange you know we've always as soon as we used to before they even came out with the uh the tape you know or the what's what are they using now like the grace tape for windows i used to actually take my skills on cut rolls of uh, grace ice and water shield into strips um and uh and then have to clean out the, the inside of the saw when i was done but i that was just a method that i thought was that was like 20 years ago when i first started building i was like oh this stuff would really seal up a window so we'd call it and do all the counter flash and flash out the bottom and and then like i don't know 10 years later it became code in oregon you know to do that it wasn't like it was just sort of like everybody was i think there were people who thought in the proper ways and then eventually it, it came downstream to the builders um because when I took the building um, training course here in Oregon, you had to be licensed and bonded and all that here just to get it to do any work. So that was all new to me. Um, but I went through that whole process. And at the time, there was a very low passing rate, like 40% passing rate because they, but there was literally nothing to do with building in the whole, it was all legal, um, how to get out, stay out of a lawsuit. You know, there's a little bit on environmental uh, protection type stuff, which out of this and really not have to know a thing about how to build a home. Uh, but you have your license to build homes in Oregon, you know, and, and commercial construction. But that, but eventually um, they started, uh, and I think because there's so many failures with exteriors in particular, that became one thing that, I mean, everybody I know who has a contract's license, even my electrician friends are like, yeah, we, we know how to flash a window now. I'd really like Maine to move you know, towards having licensure for contractors, even if it's just as simple as, you know, knowing who those contractors are in, um, you know, in Maine, and then, you know, maybe having a couple of continuing education requirements so that they get caught up on some of those things like exterior flashings. And um, I think that mostly people do that as a rule of thumb. Obviously you can get a bad contractor that doesn't do anything because there isn't a licensure. So if you can put your name on a sticker on the side of your truck, you can be a contractor in Maine, which is a little scary. 20 years ago, if you, if you could be a licensed contractor in Oregon without having any actual construction knowledge, then the whole licensure was maybe not <laughs> exactly what it should have been at the time. One thing we have going for us here is the small community because basically, I mean, my what I've seen is people who don't do a good job kind of get weeded out because it doesn't take, it, you know, there are some who come in and it, it kind of amazes me. Uh, you know, I'll even get calls for work and I don't even know, I think people call because they were referred to me, but they ultimately don't, most people don't know enough about building science to know how important it is to hire somebody who's going to think about every detail of the house and understand that it, this is, uh, you know, this is a mechanical um, structure that has, it's not like they used to be. I mean, you, you want to get them tight and then once they're tight, you have to address the fact that you have this tight structure and you have a certain amount of airflow in and out there needs to happen. Um, and you have to understand the climate, you know, cause even here in our Valley, 
um, right here in enterprise is one kind of its own climate. And then there's uh, what we call the, at the, the lake, which is all the way into the mountains, kind of at the foot of the mountains. And it's, and it's on the, it's in the north side of our mountains and the mountains are 10,000 feet. So, you know, and, and it's sitting at 5,000. So you get a 5,000 foot ring of mountains over you. So that area up there has to be treated totally different than it does in the enterprise. So it always surprises me when people will just get somebody maybe even from out of town to go up there and build something and you'll see, you'll see it going up and think, okay, uh, they're not applying any of the, you know, they're still flashing it like they would down here. They're not, a, they're not doing any extra insulation measures. You know, the flashing details are all off. That makes it difficult. But I, I actually have gotten to the place where I don't, if somebody doesn't have an appreciation or an understanding of why they want to hire me to do the work, I don't really want to do the work for them. I'd re I want them to trust that my intention is really not about, um, I mean, obviously we need to make a profit. We need to be able to, I need to pay my guys. I need to feed my family. Ultimately, uh, our goal is to build a real quality uh, modern science that we can um, to make that happen. Yeah, that's really important. And I think that's a degree that people don't think about. Um, I have pretty much said that I don't put my projects out to bid any longer. I only work with a contractor that, that they've selected. You know, if they don't have a contractor, I'll say, hey, talk to these three people, see who you like, you know, whatever. Um, because you're not getting that great of a project if they're just asking you for, for the money, you know? I want them to understand the building performance. Like you came to me because you were really interested in, you know, high performance or saving money or saving the environment or you have health issues. That's why you've come to me. So you've kind of have this pre- um, preconceived notion of what we're going to do or what we're going to provide for you. And those are the best builders that are kind of on board with that too, is people seem to understand that you need to make a profit. And unfortunately, there's been bad things in the building industry where people have taken people's money or they haven't you know, treated them right. But it's like that in any industry. So you like to think that you're hiring me because you, you trust me, not because you want me to nickel and dime uh, this whole project. And that's not that's not really what we do. And in respect to that, I've had people ask me, they're like, well, how do you get into this building science thing? And you know, how do you do that? And I'm like, you basically just stop doing all the other things. <laughs> you know, you just say, this is what I do. And then people come to you because that's what you do. So I appreciate that that's how you run your construction business is, you know, you sort of say, this is what we do. And we build well, and you've come to us because we build well. Yeah, that's the, that's the goal. Um, is that you, you have people that are interested in a certain quality product. And, and again, there are other contractors that I feel great being able to say, if I'm too busy, like here's another guy who will do a really great job for you. I remember seeing some of the work by Kissinger Construction here locally. And uh, Eric Carlson was a really creative builder who thought through a lot of these um, details. Now, Kirk Scoblin Construction, he was another creative builder, but also had, it was like these guys who didn't, who didn't seem to be in it just for the money. I really didn't like, I think it was the first, um, when I was out here and the first time I had heard, where was I? I was up in Spokane working on places and, you know, you're in a big city and it, it is helpful to learn the methods of speed construction. You know, it's helpful to learn the methods of putting down a roof quickly. Um, people want things done efficiently and they can be done efficiently 
quickly and well. Again, all those things can happen. You don't have to butcher a house and still have a fairly quick process. But when it comes down to the the final details, like we, uh, you know, we had learned in Maine, you crown every stud, you know, I literally have a guy on every job who, and my son who helps us frame now, I mean, that's been, his, that was his first job is to, to check every stud and mark the crown. Um, so that when you get to the trim stage, you have as little as possible wave in a wall. I know some people don't think that's important, but if you come up against, you know, two studs with a quarter or better crown difference, and then you go to try to put a wainscoting on or something, you've, you've got a half inch dip in the wall. But those are, the, those are the small things. Yeah, but it's really important that you talk about those things because those are the things that matter. And if you have to deal with a half inch dip in the wall, now it's going to take you twice as long to do something that could have been quick. And so it's like every little extra mile you go on one thing is less that you have to do on something else. And it's probably a lot easier to mark the studs than it is to scribe to a quarter inch dip in a wall because at the end of the day that's what people can see they can't see the marks on the studs so that they go in you know in a certain way you can shim and you can do all kinds of stuff to make it work out in the end but that's just a lot of work for the finish details and so when you're talking about efficiency and you're not just talking about the energy performance of the structure, you're talking about the efficiency of your crew and the work that you have to do and the labor and everything else is some of those things just make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, it's interesting because we, um, I've, I've had um, Energy Trust of Oregon reach out to me several times and sometimes clients will want that. But then oftentimes, generally once we meet, um, you know, because the client will ask them to be involved, and then during the meeting, um, they're asking, like, describing what, how they'd like to see things built. And oftentimes, we, built, we build to a higher standard than even they're suggesting. And then they're like, oh, you already do these things? Like, so, um, you know, and, and essentially, then you have to come up with, it's like, I don't know. So far, I haven't actually seen where it pencils out on a job to bring them in because that we were already doing these things. Unless there was, like, an incentive for like a mini split or to upgrade the windows. We've, we've taken a couple of those things or, or solar packages and whatnot. It's interesting because I think a lot of people have moved that way. And I think rightfully so environmentally conscious, but it's interesting for me. I feel like that it was kind of driven into me as just growing up as a, as a Northeast kid, you want to conserve things. You want to be uh, responsible with what you have and use it. I mean, it was like a, you have grown up watching this old house. I remember the articles about these guys that were like, it was like pride to have like a tiny scrap pile, you know, at the end of a job, but he didn't waste things. The dumpster was filled with, you know, sheets of plywood that had one cut off and end. I was just disgusted with that practice of, uh, and it's hard for me now because I, as a builder, I've got way too much stuff. I've got buildings full of building materials and doors and windows and things that I just can't bring myself to throw out. A lot of that stuff has gone on to help other people build homes I donated to people at you know local churches or whatever if they're going to build a you know chicken houses whatever but it gets reused and so to the best of our ability where I load it up and take it to scrap uh, you know whatever I'm always like I get if I'm going one place I need to have a load of metal or some kind of a scrap to as I'm driving because I got to drive two hours to get to a Home Depot so I might as well take a load of iron with me or copper or something and then come back with a load of materials or whatever. If, if we need to get, you know, most of the stuff I order locally, but there are things that we just can't just 
you know, grab here. So I'll drive up to the Home Depot occasionally or, or Ziggy's supply up in Lewiston, Idaho. Because you're two hours away, that extra scrap of plywood is that much more important. Like even if you only have a one foot wide strip of that piece of plywood, you might need it somewhere. And that keeps you from having to drive two hours to, you know, to the Home Depot. And there are a lot of people who, um, who are working on, you know, trying to just hang on to those extra scraps you know they have a trailer that they take to a job site when they need a three foot piece of a two by four that you cut off of something else which is great and it takes a little bit more thought and you know in your case it probably takes a nice storage building to house some of that stuff and hang on to it um for sure um you know you grew up in rural maine i grew up in a rural farming community you did you used everything i mean you just you kept it you used it you hung on to it you put it to work and that was the ultimate in sustainability you didn't even know you were doing it you were just being frugal yeah right i think frugality is kind of a I don't know. There's a, it's a, it's something that's important that I think has been missing from our society. And maybe this, that could be one of the blessings of this uh, virus or, or whatever. There's an awareness, like, you know, I, my, the first property, I, I had a small trailer home that I rented from this Italian and French couple in Chelsea, Maine, Isola and Eddie. And um, Isla would always bring me down soup or leftovers, but it was always in old, uh, you know, yogurt containers and the, I mean, she had, everything was never was in it like a piece of plastic she bought from the store. It was always something used. But they both they met in World War II. They both lived through the Depression. My grandmother lived through the Depression. I mean, that's that's the stories we grew up with. Um, in fact, she overindulged us because of the little that she had. You know, that so she would buy us lots of sweets and things because she couldn't have that stuff when she was a kid. You know, she talked about chewing on coal to clean her teeth, you know, things like that. So, yeah, so I think, I hope we don't ever get to a place where we're in that kind of need again. But I think just like right now, looking around, at, you know, when you go to the store and their things aren't there, we're so used to for the last 50, 70 years, always, every aisle is full. Everything is full. You never have to worry. I mean, the worst I'd, I'd seen in my lifetime was the 98 ice storm in Maine, and that was you know, things got kind of crazy then, but, you know, growing up the way we did, we always had deer and moose in the fridge and in the freezers and, you know, plenty of canned food. And so there's never any, we, we were not in a position where it's a problem, you know, but I remember the fist fights over the generators and ice and different things to preserve. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting, you know, the ice storm of 98 where, you know, we, I grew up in a farm family, so we always had a freezer full of stuff. So, you know, we never kind of were in that position. Um, and even now going to the grocery stores and the supply chain being different and the just being totally empty, this is, this is completely new for people. Although um, some of that is panic buying and, you know, we could have kept the, the stores stocked. I, I find it fascinating that people who would have like a whole cart full of milk like there's no possible way you can drink that before it goes bad so um you know it's, it's interesting what people do i mean and we say that but maybe they're supplying a you know a a chain of something i don't know you know you never know exactly why people have have all of that the toilet paper thing i actually think is kind of funny because do you have a washcloth and, and a washing machine in your house like there are some things that are like i i kind of laughed and went 
that's not a necessity. Right. Yeah. There are ways around it. I do hope, like you said, that after all of this, if things are different or they change, is that maybe we just take a little bit more conscious effort. And what we didn't have in 98 that we have now is the ability to connect on the internet. So there are a lot of people who have jobs that they can work from home. So that's great. I mean, we're going to obviously see a lot of unemployment and it's going to be very difficult for people who, who need to be out in certain areas, but we have access to technology to do training. So that's part of the reason why I've been doing, you know, one, keeping up with the podcast and two, you know, doing these uh, virtual building science plus beer, BS and beer events to, to keep people connected, to say like, hey, what do you want to know? And, and actually that's kind of exciting for me that it's uh, like B, the, the BS, um, that's been exciting uh, for me just to see it move possibly to an online platform. Though I think it'd be great for them to keep meeting personally, but um, the, for somebody like me who sees it from afar, thinking, oh, that'd be kind of a neat thing. That I was, I've intended when I was in Maine at some point to try to catch up on one, but Maybe, maybe this will instigate, uh, uh, you know, something where a few others can gather in and or at least witness. I think it's a great, great uh, thing to discuss or or utilize that platform to, to discuss these issues and brainstorm together. Yeah, well, and right now it's really important, one, to stay connected because everybody's stuck at home. Um, it's part of the reason why the BSM beers are so successful in the first place is it's a great place to go and, and connect and talk about building science or, or ask questions in kind of a really laid back environment. It's kind of usually loose. But I think um, what we'll find, and, and other people have said to me, well, why don't you start a BSM beer in, in your area? Because Mike's about an hour away, the one that he has, and part of the reason why he started his is because he's like an hour, an hour and a half from Portland, and so it's, you know, it's hard to get to Portland. Um, and maybe my part in this will be to continue virtual BS and beer, you know, once a month when things get back to normal for, because I think what we're seeing is that there are people in a lot of rural communities where, you know, for you, it might be kind of difficult to set up a BS and beer event because if people have to travel two hours to get to it, they're a lot less likely to come. But if they can sit down in the in the evening after they come home and they, you know, grab a beer and sit here and talk for an hour, that's a great platform to share like, hey, we've tried this or we've done that or I wouldn't do this or, you know, there's so many ways to share. And so I think that we were forced to test it out this way because of our current environment. But I think that it will, it will change and remain a thing um, moving forward. It's, it's interesting because um, where we live, uh, one of the things I appreciated about the West and I, it's interesting because I grew up in, in Windsor, Maine, like I said before, and we lived right near Huzzy's general store. I don't know if you're aware of Huzzy's, the largest, you know, that's right there in the town where Mike grew up and uh, you know, they're, Famous for their sign, guns, wedding guns, cold beer. Um, you know, it's it's like made the internet. You know, but yet growing up there, like my, both of my parents worked. My mother worked in Augusta, and my dad worked on the coast. Um, I knew a few of them, but it was like the community. We didn't really. If I didn't. I didn't feel like a community in the way that we uh, worked together, and like we. You know, with the store there, obviously there are a few people that we knew in town who worked at the store. But Windsor's about a you know a town of about two thousand, or it was when I was a kid. And um, what I found was working on the peninsulas of Maine, like in in New Harbor and, and Pemaquid, that area, um, 
and all of the other ones that we worked in. And what I, I was getting in the years that I worked down there, I found that I was more connected to more people in that community because the grocery store was small and I knew the guy who owned the grocery store um, played in a, in a band and I knew the guys who owned the restaurants and we'd play music for these guys. And then the guys for the plumber and the electricians, we saw them regularly because they're the same subs on, this, on all these other jobs that we worked on. So I remember thinking uh, when I was in Maine, uh, my goal was to move to a peninsula or to, for the community aspect. When I met my wife here um, in in the West, it's it's ends up being similar in the sense like the towns are very spread out, but when you get to a town, it's you know it's like the city, and then there's the rural. But uh, the cities of enterprise is two thousand, but we have a courthouse. We have uh, restaurants, we have, uh, you know, a, a brewery that makes award-winning beer. Um, uh, back in 2015, my wife and I, well, 2014, we bought a little local uh, theater, the OK Theater. Um, and because it was, it, it, you know, that was kind of a time of recession and, and the theater had closed. And we waited about a year at, the, at this old theater in the middle of our town. So, like, we have a very... Uh, communal spirit like everybody is kind of in this together so i lived just a couple blocks from my theater um i lived just a couple blocks from terminal gravity brewing where i can walk to and so in in some senses we have a not that there are people who live out you know 20 minutes or 30 minutes is a great community life in in these small rural towns because of the sense of there's business here and there's life you know there's a lot of life that way business i think brings a lot of life and so by having a courthouse the rest to our community joseph Oregon in the lake and the mountains they tend to get a more of the just straight up tourism um which is kind of why i was drawn to enterprise i like kind of the the blue collarness of our little town here it's just sort of everybody's um i don't know this is a great working town so yeah. it's, it's interesting though because it's not like i'm out five miles from anybody else I'm right in the middle of town. My kids ride their bikes to their soccer practice and dance lessons and things like that. So it's uh, like, we're not, my wife has never been like a soccer mom, so to speak. She isn't running kids around. Um, and it's freeing. It's really freeing. The kids feel free too, because like they have a dentist appointment. They get up in the morning and they walk to the dentist and, you know, and it's like they walk, they go by themselves since they were, you know, five years old. So it's kind of a nice thing and, and it's just and it's enough of the town where we know kind of where it's at generally we can always have a gauge of where whether things are um safe or not to we get done with the show at the theater and it's 10 30 or midnight the kids can walk home on their own and we feel good about that you know and it's kind of a strange thing in this day and age to be able to, to live a life like that but it's really enjoyable too yeah um i don't know that we're quite to, to that safety level here but my husband and i live in thomaston and you know we can walk up to the main town and and like you said it's a little coastal town they all know each other um i think that we're gonna see a lot more of that sense of community as we come you know out on the other side of this current quarantine you know you're even starting to see it now is is the restaurants that have remained open for for takeout as there are people who are stretching their budget a little bit to help support the local people and buy from them so that they can pay their employees so they can do those things which is really exciting to me to think about is you know that they're they're supporting this this other um 
avenue in the town because the community is really important and so i liked what you had said earlier you know about you know you you just did tile work for some other builders or you you know you crown molding for other builders i think that's also something that we could potentially see as we come out on the other side because i know right now people are trying to decide like how long is this going to last and how long can we hang on and how long can we hang on to our employees and you know will we still be in business if this is like six months from now and um we already had a labor shortage issue across the country and so seeing other contractors helping other contractors out is is really kind of empowering to to think that is maybe how the building industry will move forward as we come out of this yeah um it's interesting too as we uh, we have some other kind of fun prospects here locally uh, this this company here well it's not a company it's a nonprofit. um will our resources and this it was a outfit that started up um, kind of in conjunction with the, as logging and and some of the big practices like that here locally kind of went away the mills were kind of dying out when I first moved here I worked at a mill pulling green chain um, you know stacking 6,000 boards a night it was a great I, I, it was a great job I really enjoyed um, the the just the physical nature of it and um, and the challenge and it was just a unique I'd always done work kind of in I, that was the first job I had was kind of in a you know, any, like a mill, you know, but it's, uh, there's something important about those jobs and it's hard to have them gone. But while our resources have been doing a great work and trying to utilize our, and, and get, it's interesting because they've really been a, created coalitions and, and connections with people across. It's hard to change the way people think, you know, and it's hard if something's been taken away. I don't care if it's been 25 years since the logging has been really going it's hard for people to think like, well, one day we'll get it back and one day we'll be like we used to be. And these guys have been, I think, really healthy in saying, well, it might not be like that, but the resources are still important. And in kind of working and using even the, you know, the best science to say the sum of what even some of the environmentalists were saying was actually is not as healthy. Like some of the, some of the like, don't touch anything in the woods has led to major fire problems out here in the West where it's like, we're learning that no, actually some maintenance on these forests is very important, like clearing out the undergrowth uh, because otherwise we have these ladder fuels that climb. So they've been really instrumental in kind of saying, no, no, we want health of the, the environment. We want this, but we also want to, we can actually work together where there's industry and environmental health at the same time. And so, they've uh, they've done a lot of work and right now we've been working with a crew of guys trying to find a way to and it's difficult because we're talking about utilizing small diameter trees for timber frame so you have to you know it, it, the process has to be pretty quick because anything that's not free of heart of course is going to be you know it's going to want to twist so you got to get it uh built you know processed and and out quickly and erected you know and uh, so it's been fun to kind of work on one of those projects with these guys to uh, just kind of brainstorm about how how well that could work, but I could see in a small town like this where uh, and when you have people working on that level, they've also been using you know the undergrowth and other things to build other uh, products. Uh, there've been some biomass uh, fuel systems like put in at our schools here, and so they're they're working at you know creating these uh, uh, industries right here in the in the small area. But we have you know half a million acres of forest around us you know so it's there's a lot of wood and there's a lot of just excessive uh, product out there that could be utilized and thinning projects and all that that those also create 
markets for people to find work. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, if the more of the more of what you do can stay locally where you're at. Because I remember even as a kid watching um, a lumber a, a truck of logs go past a mill and know it was going to Canada. I couldn't understand why how it could be profitable to drive another 200 miles past the mill that's right there in Maine, you know, like where are they going and why is it valuable to, to, to not go to the nearest one, you know, and I, and I don't know if we can get any better at supply chain where you produce it here and it goes here and it may change the way we interact with building materials possibly, but um, I don't know. Those things interest me. Those things really interest me too. Um, and you think about it and you talk about it and, and, uh, you know, part of the reason why I'm in sustainability and and why I live in Maine is because I love the outdoors and I like doing that. But you're right. You have to have forest management and we don't want to do, you know, it's the wild, wild west and you just go in and cut it all down and ship it to Canada. Like you're saying, like we want to have actual forest management so that we can prevent forest fires so that we can keep up with this. Is there some new industry that's part of it? Are we, are we replanting what we've taken down? And yes, new growth wood is not the same as old growth wood, obviously. So if we have some places where we can continue to have that and not change habitats and keep the environmentalist happy, but keep the market happy and, not transporting it, you know, all over the world. Like, oh, isn't that great that that African mahogany is beautiful, but do you need it? I mean, is it necessary for us to transport that here? And that's, that, or like Maine has a lot of wood and yet we still get wood from Canada. Like we're trying to preserve what we have here, which there's some benefits to that, but that doesn't mean that we just go and cut down everybody else's. Like maybe we should be talking about, what we're doing and why we're doing it and building locally. And, you know, yeah, this virus has made it seem kind of like being in a city in a really dense area is like not so great. You know, your chance of getting the virus is maybe higher, but, you know, densities and cities and all of that um, have a better impact than urban sprawl and taking up a lot of this space. And I think a lot of the forest fires in, in California were because they just keep spreading out and they're getting closer and closer to the forest. And it's like, well, why are we spreading out? Like, is that what we should be doing? And so hopefully this will give us a chance to kind of look at it and say, okay, could we be doing something different? Could we be doing something better? Do we have local materials that we can get from here that we don't rely? Cause I, I think there's a probably a pretty big likelihood that we're going to have issues with the supply chain, you know, moving forward is right now, all the stuff that was already on a container ship and headed here is still here. And, you know, maybe it's getting delivered or maybe it's sitting in the port and we'll go through that in what, eight to 12 weeks or something. But, you know, if they're shut down and they're not shipping anything, then that next boat isn't coming. And like, oh man, all of a sudden now we don't have, you know, X, Y, or Z. And it can be a lot of things. And it's like, okay, how do we transition, keep building, keep doing stuff without the materials that we have? And maybe that will be the opportunity for us to really start looking at local. What do we have available locally? Or, or like say even um, gather the trees from and then a plant that makes OSB that's not too far away from where it's delivered and that sort of thing. Because that, that could, that's, there's not very big pieces of wood in there. So you don't need, you know, large diameter stock for that kind of a product. It's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you, speaking of the density, um, Oregon, one of the things, it's, it's interesting for me because, you know, 
I, I, I view myself as very, I mean, on, I would definitely be leaning toward like a libertarian. I, I think you should kind of be able to do what they like to do. I don't like when somebody moves in next to somebody that has stuff on their property and says, then complains about the property. I'm like, well, that's his property. He can do what he wants. It's a mess or whatever. But, um, but one of the things that kind of challenged my thoughts on that was when I got here to Eastern Oregon and witnessed sort of um, their land use regulations. So like, anything outside of the city limits um, to build a home, you need 160 acres to build. Um, and there are, there are, there are people who, um, or what I should say, there's grandfather pieces. So there's lots of 10 acre and 20 acres and 40 acre pieces out here, but, um, but that's the rule. And if it hadn't been grandfathered, then you, you have to abide by that rule. So if I'm looking to build outside of the city, and it's not a grandfathered piece, I have to find 160 acres. If it's within the tree line of the mountains up here, then I need 240 acres, because they call that timber grazing. And so it's like always with the intent of maintaining our uh, pastoral and uh, agrarian kind of, it understands that that's an important aspect of the economy here. So uh, there have been, year, a lot of people have tried to just, you know, we're beautiful mountain town, so a lot of people have had the idea of like turning this into a ski resort or something, but those regulations have kind of helped um, helped us all keep this place uh, something that's beautiful and pastoral and and uh, where people want to come because of that aspect. So it's another reason people want to come here because you look at it from you know from a map, you see the little cities, but it's like it's a really beautiful area to look at because of the land use regulation. So I would say like as a as a when you can agree as a society to do things like that. That, yeah, it may limit what you can do with your property to some degree, uh, but it also enhances sort of, um, you know, you can you can build as tight as you want in the cities. In fact, Oregon is moving toward no uh, single family residence, you know, no at all. So like every property within the city limits could be built up. And I know there are people who won't like that either because there's these beautiful historic single family home neighborhoods in Portland and there are some here that eventually will become too valuable to keep as a single family as people need space to live and need, you know, continue that density um, within the city. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's a tough thing. Uh, but I think if you can agree, and I think most of the people here, even those of the, and the beauty is like we're in this small town and one thing we've learned and loved about having a theater is, um, and it's not just the theater, just living in this close proximity, there are many, different political viewpoints, religious viewpoints, and otherwise that we, we have to rely on each other because we're so remote. And so doing events at the theater, it's always fun for me to see folks that are just coming together, enjoying a beer and a show and, and they visit and they still, they drive up the same road. They've got the same mud ruts to deal with. They've got the, you know, and it's just, a there seems to be a lot more of that that goes on here and uh, so when you get onto the social media and, and see all the divide in our nations, our little town is a refreshing um, place to be to me. Um, at least when you go out, you know, you can, you can see everybody's opinions on their, on their Facebook feed or whatever. Uh, and they're, you know, just ripping mad about this or that. And that's generally seems to be what comes out. But when they get out face to face, we're all, 
just people who are trying to make it and trying to get along and, and, uh, and will, are all willing to help each other out. That's really um, what I'd love to see happen here. And what I think is fairly common in Maine, I mean, a lot of people say they come to Maine and all the Mainers are super friendly and everything is, you know, it's a great, okay to have differing opinions and still be nice to each other. <laughs> like that's a thing, still be, you know, part of a community and not agree. Cause I mean, I think it's really unrealistic to think that we could get the whole community to agree like we all have different backgrounds we were all brought up differently we were all you know from different we were taught different things i mean even if you read rich dad poor dad which is a book on finances you know they talk about people from different economic classes are taught different things to each other you know like you just there's there's so much diversity and that's what makes us interesting you know it shouldn't be what what divides us and hopefully as a country we're really going to come together and say that and be part of a community, you know, community of building, you know, just communities in general. I love that here, you know, in our small town. Um, and that as I move forward with what I'm doing with my business too, is, you know, we don't like the word subdivision. It sounds like this terrible place and, you know, whatever, like we're not building subdivisions. We're building, we're building communities because that's what people are actually asking you for. And so you'll find people who want to live in Oregon, in those multi-units, in the smaller area, and you'll find people who want to live in a smaller town like you do that that don't mind driving two hours to you know get to to something because what you've provided in your community and I think it's awesome that you own a theater and you <laughs> serve beer and do events in the theater I think that I want to move to Oregon too to your little town <laughs> I at least want to come visit for sure because it sounds so enticing I should definitely come visit yeah and so that and that's why I think my husband and I like to travel so much as you go to different cultures you go to different places and you see how other people live and that's really exciting to me it's not like oh your way is so much worse than my way it's oh it's totally different like how can I be inspired by this um, you know one of my favorite places to go is is Costa Rica and part of that is because like I think 95% of their power is made by renewable resources. And when you buy a Coke at the store, sometimes that glass bottle doesn't hardly say Coke on it anymore because they don't grind it up and make a new Coke bottle and put a new label on it. They sterilize it and they fill it again. And it makes you kind of go, what? why'd we stop doing that? Like, why did it seem like the process of recycling these things was a better way to do it than just you know, refilling, you know, so that's, I, I loved going there because I thought, oh, this is an idea I can get behind. And growler. <laughs> yeah, growlers, right? Thank you for being on and talking to me for an hour. So uh, it was a pleasure and it's just fun to hear uh, like-minded thinkers and, and just uh, and being in the building world, obviously. But uh, I also wanted to just appreciation for design which is also an important aspect that maybe didn't get brought up too much today but um and we talked about the building the, the product that you're building and the quality but also design and making things that are beautiful or lovely no and thanks for pointing that out as is sometimes i don't talk about that you know as much and and sometimes people don't think about design and design should be functional and should be beautiful and it should be inspiring and that is hopefully one of the things that makes it durable and have longevity is people don't really like to live in spaces that are ugly. And so they trade them in, you know, they move on. And yes, we do have to provide housing for everyone and maybe not everything will be beautiful, although it should all be functional, uh, which there's a lot of things that aren't 
functional either. Design is a, a key and critical part of building structures that have longevity that last that people want to live in. And um, it's not in um, in reference to then not having a really well-built structure. They go kind of hand in hand. It's all part of that integrated design. So thank you for, for saying that. Absolutely. If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast or you have some topic that you'd like me to cover, reach out, emily at matramarch.com. And if you haven't joined us on BS and Beer on Thursday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, send me an email and I will share the link so that you can join us live for BS and Beer. If you'd like to catch the recaps from previous weeks, visit our YouTube channel, The BS and Beer Show. And you can also catch it on Green Building Advisor. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.